Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So I'm here with Klaus Kunz from Bayer at the Seed and Chips Innovation Summit in Milan. Um, how are you today? Um, I'm, I'm very fine, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk with you. Great. And what did you have for breakfast this morning? Um, the most important thing for me, honestly speaking, is uh, at minimum one cup of coffee. Um, I know there's room for improvement in terms of uh, balanced diets. Yeah. Um, the rest for me is not so important, but I need sufficient amounts in the morning, otherwise I don't arrive at lunch. Right, okay. <laughs> so the number one thing for breakfast is coffee. Is, is there anything else? Yeah, there are some cereals and, and, and things. Um, yeah. I'm not very, you know, dogmatic about my breakfast. Okay, interesting. I've had a lot other people on the podcast who have the same thing every yeah. day. Uh, I will always have yogurt and granola. Okay. I'm addicted to it. <laughs> okay, I'm not addicted uh, to food, uh, specific food. Right, things. okay. I'm very Is flexible. It, what's your favorite food? I'm totally flexible. I mean, if I go to a country, I want to eat what the country offers. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't even have a favorite food. What I managed to was to reduce chocolate consumption. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, and that's really good. Yes, and very, exactly. I'm very happy that I managed to get okay. to reduce Congratulations. Yes, thank you. I find like I go in waves with sugar. And if I start eating a lot, then I need to keep eating, you know, yes. I, I crave it more. And then the when you cut experience. it, then you lose interest. The moment of cutting is the problem. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, I'll let you know if I succeed. Um, so we're here and we're talking about the future of food and, and food technologies. Can you tell me, you know, what would you, if you could paint a picture of the future food system in 2050, what do you think it should look like? I think the, the future um, food system has to be less imbalanced. So, I mean, one of the key issues which we have today is some people have enough food and other people do not have enough and others have too much. I think in an ideal world in the future, everybody has enough access to food, uh, number one. What I believe is going to happen also is there will be a lot more traceability on food. So people will know where the food comes from. I think that's good. Um, what needs to happen though in the way of the production system is that we need to work on the paradox where we are today that producing food has a significant environmental impact, no question about it. Uh, we just have the biodiversity report out yesterday um, and it's extremely concerning. Um, so we need to work on the paradox that we protect the environment and produce enough food. And in a system which is attractive enough for farmers to hand it over to the next generation. I think it's a lot of, it's a lot of challenge to, to work in this paradox and, and my company is in the middle of that paradox. Can you tell me more about this biodiversity report? What were the findings? Was this a bio report? No, that was the report of the IBBDS uh, just released yesterday. So if you like the World's Biodiversity Council, um, it created a huge resonance uh, externally. Um, and, and for good reasons, because the result is that biodiversity is most likely the biggest, the lack of biodiversity is most likely the biggest threat which we face today. Um, even worse, or even, yeah, even worse than climate change. Um, so it comes from all angles, but there's more than a million species under severe threat at this point of time. That's one of the results. So 
actually what needs to happen is that all the factors impacting biodiversity need to be addressed and biodiversity has to go from a yeah nice to work on it into the core of all our attentions in developing new business models. Mm -hmm. So if we think about 2050 and we think about ways in which hopefully we have acted today yeah. to promote um, retaining biodiversity, what would be some of the tools that farmers might be using that would help that? What, what I think is going to happen, first of all, we will have digital technologies coming not only to the big farmers but to all farmers help, helping them to apply all the products which they need to apply in a much more specific and a much more precise uh, and in a much more sustainable way so I would guess we will be able to significantly reduce inputs fertilizers pesticides water um, while still producing the same or even more foods Mm -hmm. So I think this is one of the, the key elements which need to happen, also to preserve biodiversity. We will also have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions on the fields. And these are two areas where bio will, will, will make very um, soon, very concrete commitments how we want to contribute to those. But land use change, deforestation, these type of things are other topics where I think we can only work through partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, this can only fly anyway if everybody partners up um, and we develop this understanding together that we have to change something. And so you think one of the big uh, critical techniques that the farming industry uses today is the use of pesticides and, and, and fertil too much fertilizers and, and too many inputs. Is that, is that one of the biggest threats to biodiversity? Yes. I like that model of planetary boundaries. I don't know if you know the donut. If everything is inside the donut, then it's good. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, if certain parameters are exceeding the donuts, uh, then we need to make sure that they go back into the, into the comfort space where, where we are in a space which is prosperous for the future of, of humankind yeah. and nature. And, and biodiversity is far out. Um, climate change is out. Nitrogen cycles are out as well. So I think they are all interlinked. And that, I think, gives us a very clear target what we need to work on. But as a company that sells crop inputs, um, how, what does that mean for buyer as a business? You know, what, what new tools, what new products would you have that could still mean a reduction in sales of some of your traditional products? Yeah, so it is very clear that just selling more pesticides is not the future. And uh, it's a process our industry is going through because actually that was the business model of the past. I think, um, one of the areas where we are working very hard and actively on is going from input models into output business models, not selling inputs to the, to the farmer rather than an output. Mm -hmm. uh, the picture I like to use is the picture of a car wash where nobody wants to buy a soap. You want to get a clean car. Right. Right. I mean, that's what you're really interested in. And actually, soap is a cost factor and you want to drive down your inputs. So I, I think the output model from various angles will help uh, because it will certainly help to drive down inputs. Um, it will give more security to the farmer. It will change our way of operating. It will change our way of doing R&D, I think very significantly because we need to look for new things. We need to look for integrated uh, offers 
for tailored solutions for the farmers, um, for complete solutions for the farmers, but also we need to make sure that the farmer has enough choice. Mm -hmm. I think that's another topic which I find extremely important that mm -hmm. the farmers have choices. So talk to me more about this output model then. Can you be a bit more specific? In an ideal case, we offer the farmer a yield. Right. Yeah, right? So we, if, he, if he purchases the program, um, which contains sustainability components as, as they have to be in, um, we, we guarantee a certain yield. Um, and if the yield is not met, uh, he doesn't have to pay. So it's like a cost sharing? Yes. Oh. Okay. I think that is that is. I, I think that's one of the really interesting models which we can run in the future mm -hmm. because we have more data available um, to trust in the fact that we can guarantee the yields. Then you come to the question of data ownership. It's very important to clarify how do we get to the data, who's owning that data. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things I think will be very important to check out in the future. If you have digital farming, if you have precision farming, with all the advantages of decision, uh, precision farming, how do we manage and handle the very, the very important topic of data ownership in a, in, a, in a good way for everybody? Yeah. So you're very focused on the sustainability side. I'm, I'm interested to know, do you look at different um, technologies that can improve the nutritional content of crops? Is that something that's of interest. It is, it, sorry. No, I was just going to say, because actually thinking about it, if you could produce crops that are nutritionally enhanced, then you might need to grow fewer of them for people to get the, the nutrition that they need. Yes, I, I agree. It is, at this point of time, we are, we are starting at the moment. We are starting and we want to come out at least with a framework which is helping to, to resolve the paradox I described with protecting environment and producing enough food, so it's a food security topic. I agree with you and it's a comment which we have received. Where's food quality? What do you, how do you comment on, on nutrition and quality? Um, I would say that's the next thing which we need to target. Um, um, and there's, there's no escape from that conversation and it's linked to, to very scientific topics but it's also linked to the question of residues. For example, um, less residues in, 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 uh, in pesticide in food, residues. Uh, pesticide residues. Yep. So all those things we will integrate into our strategy moving forward. So we're here at this um, innovation summit, and there are many different startup technologies and entrepreneurs with new um, ideas and innovations. What excites you when you see some of this new innovation that you may or may not be looking at inside Bayer? But you know, what are some of the tools that you think are really important for the future? What I mean, what I'm particularly interested at the moment are new business models for smallholder farmers, mm -hmm. um, because we want to address that topic. We want to make a huge commitment to help smallholder farmers to thrive, not in a charity model because we are an enterprise, but in a way that we not only address those smallholder farmers who already have a running business, but also those who are in, uh, working in subsistence conditions at this point of time. Mm -hmm. And there were some interesting touch points here. Uh, to see where in Ivory Coast, for example, they are working on models where they can kind of shortcut the finance flow because a lot of money which is going into the subsistence farming in Africa disappears, you know, in middlemen and all these type of things. Right. How can we find finance models um, 
bonus models, rewarding models that make sure that all the benefit arrives at the farmer mm -hmm. and doesn't disappear. This is something I find really interesting here. The other thing and the big question is for me, on which timeline will digital be reality in farming um, and where? Because it will be certainly very different on different levels in different geographies. Mm. Um, it is interesting how already in some geographies farmers are totally advanced in terms of applying precision agriculture while regulators, politicians and even big companies are struggling to follow the, the speed. Um, so those are topics which I find very interesting, lots of good touch points here. Yes, and I had an interesting conversation yesterday with Liam Condon as well and we were talking about um, smallholder farmers and the, the technologies if there are some that are relevant you know, in the developed markets, yes. if they can be translated to the developing market, or if you need to be developing tools specifically for smallholders. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think there's some potential tra technology transfer from developed markets, or do you think that we should be looking at smallholders as a very different client base? It, it is both. It is very different. Um, and it starts with the fact that I think we have a huge responsibility and opportunity, starting with proper education mm -hmm. uh, and stewardship tools, um, reaching out to all the farmers and helping them to apply products in a safe way and responsible way and sustainable way. Uh, that is absolutely mandatory and this is to a much larger extent needed than if you go to the developed markets where the farmers are professionals. Mm -hmm. um, transfer of uh, technologies uh, relates to individual products, which um, I think is very important that the perception that we are selling the old stuff in Africa while we are selling the new stuff in Europe, that's not true. That's actually not true. We have standards for our entire portfolio, um, which are clear. For example, just to give two examples, we do not sell WHO Tox Class 1 products anywhere anymore. And also, uh, we have a policy that we only sell products which are registered in an OECD country, minimum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Having those standards makes also sure that products which go, which are developed for Europe also can go to Africa and also to the poorer areas of Asia and Latin America. Mm -hmm. So that's the traditional technology transfer. The big comes with digital once again. Yeah. What are you thinking about that transfer? Often it's from Europe to um, African countries. And last year we had the regulation decision around gene editing to classify it as GMO, um, which I think could miss out on a lot of opportunity for Africa when they are struggling with certain diseases um, in certain crops. Bananas is one example where I think um, gene editing could, could help. What are your views on that? Um, do you think that that is you know, going to be a missed opportunity for African agriculture? I don't think it's going to be a missed opportunity for Africa, it's going to be a missed opportunity for Europe. Because this research will come uh, and, and these, these new crops and these better seeds will be developed, um, but then they will not be available in Europe. But so do you I think they'll be the adopted though in African countries because yes. they often follow Europe? Yeah, no, I think they will be adopted and that's from what I sense at this point of time. On genome editing we have really a different type of conversation than on GMO and also a different type of conversation uh, than about pesticides because I think it's becoming clear um, 
through a broader spectrum of society that genome editing actually provides a technology which could be a very good compromise between new technology and also ethical demands and also demands on how crops should be um, uh, uh, produced. Um, because actually with genome editing you can make crops which you cannot differentiate from any natural crop at all, just you can make it much faster and much more targeted. Yeah, could you, as a scientist, could you just give a quick description of the difference between gene editing and, and GMO? Yeah, very, um, from my perspective, very simple. In GMO, you, in, you in, insert foreign DNA into the DNA strand of So that's of from plant. another species? Yes, from another species. For example, you use a bacteria strain uh, which can re uh, re re repel insects or even kill insects, you build it into a soybean uh, DNA and then the soybean can fight insects. You don't need to spray an insecticide, mm -hmm. which is also very nice, right? I mean, it brings a lot of environmental advantages, has a very positive environmental impact, but that is something which is in Europe is apparently not accepted. Mm -hmm. yeah, with genome editing, you can do that, but the concept of, of genome editing is more that you understand exactly your DNA. You understand exactly which parts of the DNA are responsible for what. And by selectively cutting into the DNA into, in, in one space and allowing them a natural repair process, Mm -hmm. So no foreign insertion, just a natural uh, a process which could also happen if by chance sunlight would have done this mutation. Or breeding or cross-breeding between different exactly. yeah. strains. But, but in that case with the, with the breeding, with the more traditional breeding technologies, you just don't do it in the targeted way. Sometimes you even use chemistry to create mutations. And then you need to figure out which mutation is good, which mutation is bad. That's all accepted under conventional breeding. Mm -hmm. With genome editing, you can do it exactly where you need to do it mm -hmm. to create the effect you want to see. And you can, you, you can have plants with, which are crowd resistance. You can uh, plants which can eventually be more, more stable against diseases or yeah. even pests. And these plants could actually be produced by nature as well. I think one of the big issues with GMO, and people talk about it still with gene editing um, without that foreign genetics, is the idea of unintended consequences. But it sounds to me like this is um, almost a more secure way of, yes. of manipulating. Yes, and this is, why we are, this is why we are surprised that the conversation immediately flipped into the GMO piece. Because I think, I, I would still advocate to say genome editing is not just one thing. They are genome editing methods where you can, where you also can insert foreign DNA. I would accept that in Europe, that's at the moment not what people would, would want to see. But what I just described, I think should be really, that, that should be, I think that would, should be something where we should find a consensus for Europe because otherwise we close a big door. And once again, these products will come to Africa. They will not come to Europe if we close the door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just before we um, started recording, you were talking a bit about uh, public opinion on various different topics, and you were talking about the impact of certain pesticides, I think it was, on the bee population. Yes. Can you just talk a bit about how, what you told me about public opinion and yeah. how it can't be changed? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was responsible in, in Gaia for three years to lead the task force on the neonicotinoids. Uh, very heated debates in the public on, 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 on safety to bees. 
Um, and it's absolutely true, if you apply this class of chemistry in the wrong way, it's toxic to bees. So it is a matter of massive stewardship, uh, positioning of the, the, these insecticides in the right place in the, in the spraying cycle and not in the wrong place, for example, spraying into flowering um, of bee attractive crops is a no-go with this class. Um, what I realized is that at one point of time it was very difficult to have a fact-based conversation. Uh, it became very emotional. Um, this is a very emotional topic. Um, and then I think our company and other companies have to learn better to navigate in such a situation. We were a little bit struggling with the fact that nobody wanted to listen to our science. On the other hand, we always referenced on our science, but most of our science was not available. And that was the moment when we decided as Bayer that we want to make all our regulatory data available to the public. Um, otherwise, we, we, we have no justification to make the claim that people are not listening to our science course, if it's not yes. available. Yep. So that was, I think, a big change for us to say transparency is something which we will execute in a different way in the future. Yeah. And so since 2017, we have a website, if you're interested in imidacloprid, our B tests, our B trials, our B studies, in glyphosate uh, studies, we all make it available. Mm -hmm. And is it translated into language that you know the layman can understand? Not yet. Because there's one thing providing the research, yes. but there's another thing it being you know readable yes it comes it comes along with the offer to talk to us um, it comes along with a couple of instructions how to read these type of reports but I think we need to invest more into into simplifying things and also explaining these things much better but the first thing we want to do was provide the data as such because if we start to work on the data people will not believe that we have provided the whole mm -hmm. truth. So, I mean, we wanted to start with the science and invite scientists to talk with us. But you're absolutely right, the conversation, if people trust us and then we have a conversation, we will need to start to explain it in much simpler words. What mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And I just before we, um, we sort of start to close up, I'd love to ask you a bit about regenerative agriculture and agro-ecological farming practices. Um, as someone who's, you know, focused on sustainability, do you see those as scalable farming systems where there's, you know, minimal use of, of inputs and there's different types of rotational grazing with, um, with livestock or there's, you know, agroforestries? I'm just interested in your yes. views on that. The, si the simple answer is, is yes. I, I don't believe in, the, in this distinct division between con uh, conventional intense farming and and organic farming, for example. Um, what I think what we should aim for is using the best of all these things and com combining them into one model. At the moment, we have almost religious positions on this is conventional, right. this is bad, yeah. and this is, by the way, us. Yeah, And then this is organic and this is good. Um, and I had an interesting debate recently in, in Brussels with um, a politician who said, we want to arrive in a 100% organic world. We don't. Want, you say reduction of pesticides is all nice and good, but actually we want no pesticides anymore. And I asked if, if she believes that the same substance just produced by a plant is 
for whatever reason, safer or better than if the same substance is produced in a laboratory. Mm. Because one is treated as biologic and the other is treated as or organic and the other is treated as, as chemical, synthetic. The one is good, the other one is bad. And that's for me not a rational way to approach it. I think there's excellent components in organic farming. But there's also some things in organic farming which are not sustainable. Such as? Copper. I mean, the copper use is, is now, I mean, it, it, that's the obvious one. I mean, spraying, you know, kilograms of copper uh, mm. of, a, of a heavy metal which cannot metabolize and go away is apparently not sustainable. Right. And that's, that's also something. But I mean, I don't want to focus so much on this because I also believe there's a lot of good practices in organic mm. farming. Like, there's good practices in conventional and not so good practices in conventional. Mm -hmm. And I think we should get the best of both. That's what I'm yeah, but dreaming the of. The problem is, it's, and this is always the case with food and agriculture, is that it's so complex, of course, yes. that communicating it to the public and telling a story is a lot harder when you say, well, actually, we want to mix a bit of this, a bit, a bit of that, and, and collaborate. You know, the public holds on to certain facts and figures and sticks with those. So how can we communicate this complex way forward? Yeah, I mean, what I believe the, the step our industry has to take is, I mean, at least we should leave our position of being solely on one on one track. And actually you mean we as in Bayer? Yeah, we are, for example, Bayer, actually we sell a lot of products to organic farmers and nobody knows that. Right. Which I think so makes you no sense. So you should promote that a bit so. more, yeah. I think so, because then, I mean, we have, then we have like a justification to, to say, to talk about what I just talked about, that let's use the best thing mm -hmm. and not just from a, from a more, you know, I, I should say, religious perspective, this is good and this is bad, irrespectively of, of a scientific evaluation. Um, that's, I think, what we can do and bring to the table. Um, yeah, and I'm advocating for that. Great. But it's, I mean, it's times of change yeah. and uh, our ship is very big. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. I hope you enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope I can give you an, an update uh, not too far down the line where we stand. That sounds great. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.